You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. and welcome to History of the Great War episode 223. This week, I would like to once again remind everybody that there is a listener questions episode coming up soon, so send in those questions to historyofthegreatwar at outlook.com. Also, this podcast is brought to you by the support of listeners, just like you, thanks to their support over on Patreon. Head on over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to find out how you can get access to special ad-free versions of all of these episodes, or even special Patreon-only episodes. Last episode, we tracked some of the events in Iraq leading up to the start of the revolt in July 1920. The months before the uprising were marked by increased tensions between the British civil and military administrators and local leaders and citizens. In this episode, we are going to discuss the events of the uprising, from its beginnings as scattered armed uprisings, through to the point of greatest threat to the British position in Iraq, and then through to its conclusion. The uprising would not completely eject the British from Iraq, but it would greatly narrow their options for how to interact with the territory in the future. We will close out the episode by just touching briefly on what that future was going to look like. The first area where the situation transitioned from peaceful demonstrations and discontent to an armed uprising was around the village of Rumaitha. Rumaitha is located on the Euphrates, uh, roughly halfway between Baghdad and Basra. It had a British military garrison, but the garrison was quickly cut off and put under siege within the city. After only a few days of this siege, the garrison was under serious supply constraints. Food, water, and ammunition were all running out, and it was clear that the garrison was working on a very limited time schedule. To try and break the siege, General Leslie, the area commander, decided to dispatch a train with an infantry escort to the town to deliver food and water. On July 6th, this relief column, under the command of Colonel McVean, uh, had been able to advance to a point just six miles to the north of the village. What the British did not know was that they were walking into a trap. There were 4,000 rebels who were just waiting to ambush the relief column. Only half of these men had firearms, and even less of them were modern rifles, but even just a fraction of the armed men with modern weapons still drastically outnumbered the British. 
The ambush was waiting for the column in an area near a dried up canal that provided really good cover for the rebels. The initial British reaction was to try and attack directly into the insurgents, with an Indian unit making the assault, an assault that would be unsuccessful. Colonel McEveen quickly determined that he simply did not have the men necessary to break through to Rumaitha, and with that reality setting in, he had to act quickly. Trying to hold his position was not an option, because reports were already coming in that the rebel forces were moving around his flanks. The British relief column was very exposed, and there was a real danger that the relief column could be surrounded, and if that happened, they would either be destroyed or forced to surrender. McVean decided to break off and retreat back along the rails to the north, and in this he was greatly assisted by the timely arrival of a flight of planes from No. 6 Squadron, who arrived and strafed and bombed the rebel positions, throwing them into disarray. Even though the relief column successfully extracted itself from a very precarious position, it did not complete its purpose, the relief of Ramitha. Many of the problems that the British were having were related to the economic problems that we discussed last episode. The push to reduce the number of British and Indian troops in Mesopotamia, even though tensions with the locals were rising, was one of the results of this new economic reality. At the time of the revolt, General Haldane had about 47,000 troops under his command, but they were spread out all the way from the borders of Turkey to the Persian Gulf. A good portion of these troops were also occupied with peacekeeping operations 450 miles to the northeast of Baghdad, near the borders uh, of Persia at the time, um, Iran today. When the number of soldiers in hospital due to illness was taken into account, Haldane just had a bit over 34,000 men available to react to the uprising. Haldane knew that this was not enough troops to protect all areas, and so he was forced to constantly reposition units into the areas of greatest concern, and basically to put out fires. At least initially, this meant that men and materiel converged on the Rumaitha region. The villages around Rumaitha would contain most of the early actions of the uprising. However, just a week after the decision to focus on Rumaitha had been made, news began to arrive that the violence had spread into other areas as well. The first new report came from the Samaya district, uh, 75 kilometers northwest of Rumaitha, and then another arrived on June 14th uh, that a third garrison, this time at Samawa, uh, 20 miles south of Rumaitha, was under siege, so that's both northwest and south. There were two things that were incredibly worrying about all of these developments. Obviously, the first concern was that the uprising was spreading. Uh, but also that the rebels were exhibiting that they understood precisely how the British would attempt to answer their actions. They knew that the British were heavily dependent on rail transport, and so they attacked the rails to make sure that they were either unavailable or were in such a state that would slow the British response. By July 8th, they had captured six trains and had damaged several major rail lines along the Euphrates. With the military situation becoming precarious at best, news arrived from London. Minister of State for War Churchill would write to Haldane on June 14th, saying that your difficulties are appreciated and every effort will be made to complete your forces and personnel. Along with this message was a clear statement that any further troop reductions were cancelled, of course. While Haldane was probably quite relieved that London understood the predicament that he was in, he was probably even more thrilled by the next set of news that arrived from London. Churchill had presented the information from Iraq to the general staff on July 17th, making it clear that Haldane had no reserves left and that the British position in Iraq was on the brink of disaster. The only possible recourse was to send in more troops, and a division of troops from India was ordered to Iraq. 
The only problem was that it would take weeks for these troops to arrive and to be ready for action, and this meant that the full division would not be in Basra and ready to move out for over a month. If Haldane could keep the situation together for that period of time, then then the division would almost certainly bring things back under British control. While the political situation in Baghdad and London was still developing, another relief column for Rumaitha was being put together and prepared. This time the relief column would be under the command of Brigadier General F.E. Cunningham, and it would be much larger than the previous attempt. It would still be based around a supply train, but it would also be accompanied by four battalions of Indian infantry and one battalion of British infantry, along with three batteries of artillery. Even though this force was much larger than the previous uh, force that tried to relieve Rumaitha, it still had many of the same problems. Its supply lines and lines of communication would be almost entirely undefended, and it would always be at risk at being cut off. A new problem was that such a large force would be spread out over a very large distance as it moved forward, making it vulnerable to quick attacks as it marched. The final major problem was that it was just very warm. And on some days, when the column would be moving, the temperatures would reach 120 degrees Fahrenheit, or 50 degrees Celsius. To answer the advance of the column, the Arabs had strengthened their defensive positions. The number of men available had also increased to 5,000 from the previous 4,000, and they'd also been able to obtain more weapons and ammunition. Time and effort had also been put into the defenses, and trenches had been dug in the area near the previous ambush, and the area that the British would once again have to move through. The defensive positions were also extended on both sides of the Euphrates. Now, this was important because while the main British advance would be on the right bank, the left bank positions would be created so that they would be able to fire on any British attack on the main defenses. The hope was that this would make any British attack simply on the right bank impossible, and it would force them to deal with forces on both sides of the river, which would be a challenge. Cunningham did not know that the Arabs had greatly improved their defenses, but he did have one major advantage, artillery. On July 19th, they would be used as preparation for the British attack, with six guns opening fire on the Arab positions. At this point, the British did not really have a full understanding of the defenses that they were attacking into. The biggest problem was that from the British position, it was difficult to tell which side of the river various landmarks like villages or obvious defenses were located on. This issue was primarily due to how flat the land was, with the British unable to find an observation position that provided a good view of the Arab defenses. Even without perfect information about what they were walking into, two battalions were sent forward in an attack. Much like in the earlier battle, this first attack was a failure. It very quickly became clear that positions on the other side of the river would make it almost impossible to launch a successful attack, and so the only option was to try and remove them from the equation by attacking them. There was just one problem. They were on the other side of a river. Now, at this point, the Euphrates was only about 40 yards wide, and it was a maximum of 10 feet deep, so crossing the river was not impossible under the best of circumstances, but it was still going to be incredibly difficult while there was enemy holding the other bank. Any attacks that went across the river came under heavy fire while the men were actually still in the water. And after several failed attempts to make it across the river in the late afternoon, Cunningham called a pause to the attacks. The British column was now in a very similar position to the first column. They had attempted to break through the Arab defenses, and they'd failed. And now the Arab defenders were starting to launch counterattacks, causing the British and Indian forces to go on the defensive. The frontline units were low on water and ammunition, but they were prepared to meet the attack, and they wouldn't be able to beat off this first counterattack. And 
With no other option, really, Conningham ordered one more attack. If this attack did not succeed, then the British would once again have to retreat north. When the last attack started, instead of finding the same determined defense that they had experienced earlier in the day, the advancing Indian troops found defenses that were completely abandoned. The British did not know why the rebels left, whether it was due to concerns about future British attacks or lack of supplies or some other reason. All that they knew was that the Arabs were gone, and this allowed the advance to continue, and supplies were brought up to replenish the units that had been fighting all day. At 3.15 in the afternoon the next day, the first squadrons of cavalry arrived in Rumaitha, officially ending the siege. The fighting from the previous day had cost 35 men killed and 150 wounded, but they had succeeded in their goal of reaching Rumaitha. They would stay in the village for one night before preparing to once again move back north. Now, Cunningham was concerned that the Arabs fighting around him would return, and maybe even in larger numbers, and they would attack the new, now even larger column as it moved back north with everybody that had been in Rumaitha. To heighten these concerns, a few Arab horsemen shadowed the column during the day, and this caused the advance to be very cautious as they moved back north, and in the evenings, it was often the time was often taken to make strong defensive positions close to the river. This delayed their retreat, but let it happen successfully, and the column would arrive back in its home base in relative safety on July 25th. While the disaster of the destruction of the garrison had been avoided, even the successful retreat represented a failure for the British. They had lost Rumaitha, and news of the success of the siege spread around the area, causing support for the uprising to grow. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at While one possible disaster had been averted, with the spread of the uprising, possible disasters were everywhere. By the middle of July, there were an estimated 35,000 rebels, which was putting many different British positions at risk. It was also just a matter of time before one of these garrisons was destroyed, or a relief column was caught out in the open. This latter disaster would happen with the 2nd Battalion of the Manchester Regiment. These troops were sent south out of the city of Hilla on the afternoon of July 23rd. Their goal was to move south and relieve a garrison that had come under attack. However, they were attacked during the night and it would be a disaster. 178 men were killed, 150 were captured, and 60 were wounded. This represented an almost 50% casualty rate, with 388 out of the 800 men being lost or wounded. Along with the men, large numbers of weapons, large amounts of ammunition, and even 18-pounder field guns were lost. With the remnants of the Manchester Regiment arriving back in Hilla, the authorities were in panic. They knew that they had to communicate the disaster back to Baghdad. However, instead of putting the message in code, they instead broadcast it in the clear. There were many people who received this message, and news of it spread quickly throughout both the British Army and the rebel groups. This boost to rebel morale caused even more men to take up arms. 
In Baghdad, there were at this point serious discussions of withdrawing all of the troops that were in northeast Iraq so that they would be available and could be concentrated in the south, where the uprising was at its strongest. This step would not be taken immediately, but it was decided to pull some of the garrisons out of points of danger on the middle Euphrates. This included Conningham's troops, who had arrived in the city of Dumania after relieving the siege of Ramitha. Haldane decided to bring these troops further north to Hilla, which would allow for a larger and less vulnerable concentration of British forces in the area. However, there was a problem. This movement from Dewania to Hilla would take at least six days through hostile territory, and there was not enough road transport available to carry all of the supplies, sick and wounded, that would be coming along. To solve this problem, Conningham was building a column around both rail and road transport, utilizing a train as a base for supply and as a transportation method for the sick and wounded, while the rest of the men would be marching around it. The column would stretch for over a mile, and it would be vulnerable as it moved, but this was seen as the only way that the move was possible. On the night of July 29th, final preparations were made for the move. The men were issued as much food and water as they could carry, and they set off at 6.30 a.m. the next morning. The rebels did not have the strength to attack this force directly, but they did know how vulnerable that it was to any kind of delay. Therefore, the rebels would begin to destroy the train tracks in front of the train. Conningham had the men and supplies to fix the tracks, but it slowed his advance, and everyday food and water supplies dwindled. When track supplies ran out, a system was developed whereby when damaged track was encountered, the tracks from behind the train were torn up and transported to the front. While this system worked, it obviously slowed movement even more, and soon the men were placed on half rations as they struggled forward. Eventually, on August 8th, after 10 days on the march, Conningham's troops moving north met with troops coming south from Hilla, and the next day they arrived in the town, having covered over 80 kilometers through very hostile territory with very few casualties. Even though this was once again a success, it was once again a successful retreat, and once again it was seen as a great victory for the rebels. They had forced the British army to abandon the central Euphrates, and now there were over 100,000 Arabs in arms. The rebels were also no longer concentrated just on the central Euphrates, and uprisings were spreading to the northwest, to the northeast, everywhere in Iraq. All of this was bad news for the British. However, there was some good news. The first reinforcements from India began offloading in Basra on August 10th, and having these troops available would completely alter the military situation, and it also made the civilian administration in the capital feel a lot more secure. Friends were on the way. This new feeling of security resulted in orders sent out to try and arrest four leading nationalists in Baghdad. This was a colossal mistake, because news of the order leaked out, and very quickly large crowds gathered in front of the houses that the leaders were in. When the British troops moved in to try and arrest them, the resulting violence would only end after three policemen were killed, six civilians were killed, and twelve more were wounded. The violence during the arrest attempt inaugurated a, a new period of violence by the British authorities. On August 12th, a proclamation was made to the people that the military court had been set up and had been convened and would try all offenses against public order. Six Arabs would be arrested, accused of firing weapons at the police, they were found guilty, they were hanged. Four men were arrested a few days later and they would face the same fate. These arrests and executions would continue for weeks. 
One of the mistakes that the British leaders would make, which would lead them to underestimate the power of the uprising, was the mistaken belief that the movement was just the actions of a mostly lawless mob, especially in the capital. This was absolutely not the case, and soon after the uprising began, it was highly organized. Because the British did not really understand this, or did not compensate for it correctly, they would make mistakes, like the one where they tried to arrest those nationalist leaders in Baghdad. That may have been possible against a more disorganized opposition, but that's not what the rebels were. The rebels were greatly assisted in their efforts to organize by existing power structures, with leaders within the tribes and rural areas, and then leaders in social groups in the urban centers, all taking part in the uprising and using their position to lead it. These men were leaders who had not been favored by the British after they'd begun their occupation during the war, and they were therefore heavily motivated to see British power diminished. However, they did not want it to be replaced by some sort of chaos, or a totally new form of leadership within the country. They were people that had been part of the pre-existing power structure, and they wanted to see their power and financial position restored, and this put a limit on the revolutionary aspects of the uprising. In fact, the vast majority of the leadership of the uprising were just aiming for a return to the autonomy of the Ottoman era, although there were a few real reformers within the group. These reformers were not always successful, and they were especially prevalent among certain specific groups. Like one of these groups was women, who hoped to be able to use their participation in the uprising and their quest for greater independence. This was similar to what happened in other revolutionary movements around the world, where women and other groups hoped to parlay their support and sacrifice in the push for independence as leverage in their long-term goals of a greater voice in public affairs and greater personal freedoms in the new societies that they were helping to create. But all of these sort of revolutionary feelings were often controlled and sidelined by the more mainline leaders of the uprising, who didn't want to see these big societal changes. After the British retreat from the Middle Euphrates, the situation stagnated for some time. The Arab forces were unable to project their power beyond their already existing areas of control, and the movements of the British army had allowed them to mass enough troops in key areas to prevent further disasters. The balance of power would begin to completely change, though, as the reinforcements from India were first unloaded and then became available for action. Haldane had waited for these new troops, conserving his strength with the knowledge that the new set of reinforcements would likely be the last that he would receive. This caution would mean a delay until the end of September, at which point he had received over 15,000 more men. Most of these men were being massed in Nazaria, which was on the southern end of the region that the British had been pushed out of by the actions in July and August. Along with just the number of men now available, they were also now much better prepared for operations in the theater, which in many ways mirrored the evolution of British operations during the First World War. Some of the earlier attempts simply were not provided with the resources to succeed, but the troops in Nazaria were accompanied by two entire supply trains that were dedicated just to making sure that the troops were well supplied in water and food. This new supply situation removed one of the most powerful options that the Arabs had available to them in the earlier fighting, and which we've talked about so much today, the power of delay, which caused units to run out of supplies. They had always had time on their side. With this large force, the objective was the relief of the siege of Samawa, uh, the city that had been under siege for months but had not been captured by the rebels. 
The failure to capture this city had prevented some groups in the Middle Euphrates from joining in the uprising, and these groups, like the Muntafiq tribes, were probably essential to the overall success of the uprising. Unfortunately for the Arabs, their opportunities had passed, and when the relief column set out on October 1st, its movement was slow, but unrelenting. Many of the Arabs fighting would only find out about the existence of the large British force when it arrived in their area, and there was little they could do to slow it down or, or stop it. The relief of Samawa was inevitable, and once the force arrived in the city, the uprising as a movement that had a chance to break British power in Iraq was mostly over. It would also mark the end of large-scale resistance. Some of the major uprising leaders, seeing that the tides had turned against them, fled, many to the Hejaz. Many of the tribes that had joined in the fighting now laid down their arms and surrendered to the British. Other groups refused, and they would begin a guerrilla warfare campaign that would last for several months. And this was a very damaging period in the fighting, with the British trying to combat these tribal groups. The British would try and contain them by burning villages to the ground who were thought to harbor or supply the rebels. The inhabitants of the villages were left to their fate. Thousands of people probably died from these methods, and they were mostly just unarmed civilians, adding to the death toll. But this fighting had very little chance of drastically altering the situation in Iraq. The British were still in control, and it was kind of up to them what happened next. After the uprising was over, plans moved forward to install an Arab government in Iraq, one which was very friendly to the British. The word puppet could probably be used. I, I might use the word puppet to describe the government. But anyway, this new government was under the leadership of King Faisal, who had first been installed as the king of Syria before disagreements with the French had forced the British to find another throne for him. The foundation of this government was announced on November 11, 1920, with an announcement later in the month of a general amnesty for all of the participants in the uprising. While the new government now existed, it took time for it to take control of the country and for its official relation with the British Empire to be solidified. In October 1921, this would finally be complete, and the treaty would be signed that gave the British rights to station troops in Iraq, control over Iraq's foreign policy, the power to appoint a high commissioner with wide oversight abilities, and to require Iraq to repay some of the costs that had been incurred by the British during occupation. While these clauses put severe limits on the sovereignty of the new nation, it was still put in place, which would sow the seeds for some discontent, which would cause instability in the following years. Even if there were limits on its sovereignty and autonomy, Iraq was still a country now. And in 1932, it would be granted its independence from the British Empire. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode, and I hope you will join me next episode as we dive into a new topic, a very confusing topic, in my opinion, and that would be the Irish Civil War.